You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of collected works of Rudolf Steiner, number 218-218, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism. This is Lecture 3, given in Dornach on the 20th of October, 1922. In observations we began here a short while ago, we considered the great events of history, and of human evolution itself, on the one hand, and on the other the individual human being. And basically each can only be properly understood in the light of the other. Today, therefore, I want to add a study of the human being himself to the broad historical perspectives we surveyed, so that these two aspects can, in a sense, be combined again in the following days. Let us once again describe the human being as anthroposophy sees him, as we have often done in the past. First we distinguish the physical human organism, which is permeated in turn by the etheric organism. Then into this system formed of a physical and etheric organism, the astral organism and the capital I are incorporated. From the way we enter the state of sleep and return from it to waking life, we can tell that the physical and etheric organisms have a closer mutual affinity, and the astral and I are likewise more closely connected. In the waking state, these four aspects of human nature are joined together, but separate during sleep, so that the mutual connection is stronger between I and astral organism on the one hand, and between the physical and etheric organism on the other. In other words, the astral and etheric organisms are not as close-knit, if you like, as the eye and the astral bodies, or the physical and etheric bodies. In studying these things, we will need to picture the way they work and interact. And here I'd like to start from some very specific observations. We look at the world around us, but what does this actually mean? Let's be very factual for a moment. Looking at the world around us means that something impinges on us or affects us. But in considering the whole human being, we have to ask what in us the surrounding world is actually affecting. Though it might appear superficially as if what we see is impinging on our physical organism, this is not the case. Our physical eye, EYE, it is true, is involved when we see something in the world around us. There's a drawing. Yes, we have physical eyes, and yet everything that occurs in the physical eye is secondary, whereas the primary occurrence is really an interplay of processes in the capital I and the astral organism. I'll indicate this here by showing the activity of the capital I penetrating the I-E-Y-E as yellow. Naturally, this capital I also works further into the organism, and the astral organism as red. We have to be clear that the primary occurrence, when we see something, 
involves processes in the capital I and the astral organism. You can recognize this if you consider your own power of vision in a somewhat more intimate, less superficial way. You need only reflect when you look at the color red, for instance, whether you are able to distinguish between your own self, your capital I, and this red. You cannot. You are not able to make a distinction between yourself and the red because you are this red. It fills your awareness entirely, and you are nothing other than it. It is easier to recognize this is so if you imagine that this red is the only thing you can perceive. Imagine seeing a big red surface. In doing so, you have to first recall that you are a capital I, must first detach the capital I from this experience. But while you're looking at this big red surface, the red and your capital I have merged, and the same is true of our astral organism. Processes in the capital I and the astral organism must therefore be considered first of all in relation to how we see things. In studying the I-E-Y-E, we must consider, and here you see how complex this is, that we have a kidney system, which I'll draw here schematically. This kidney system belongs to our physical organism firstly and possesses solid parts. As you know, I have often said that there is not so much solidity in us, not so much that is mineral in nature, for we are 90% water, a column of water if you like. But we do have some solid constituents, which are continually afloat in fluid, in a watery element. Thus we must see the kidney system at the same time as a point of departure for the watery element present not only in the eliminatory function of the kidney system, but pervading the whole organism, and among other things, also rising into the eyes. But this watery element, which in a sense radiates outward from the kidney system and even streams into the eyes, is not dead, but living fluid. You would form a very mistaken idea of the fluid, the watery element in us, if you were to imagine that this watery, excuse me, that this water within the living human organism is the same as the water in a brook, this is not so. The brook contains dead water while the fluid in the human organism is alive. Not only the blood plasma, but all fluid within us is alive and finally dissolved in the waves, if you like, of this fluid element are also the solid constituents I mentioned earlier which are born everywhere through the organism, also as far as the eyes. On these waves of the inner fluid element, the human being's etheric organism also shines into the eyes. Two different things now meet in the eye, E-Y-E. Our etheric organism pervades it, and then there is the optic nerve. And now the astral picture arising in the human astral body, streams into the fluid filled by the etheric organism. And this aspect here arises through the capital I. It streams into it, and then also streams onward. This means that in the human eye, E-Y-E, and also in the human optic nerve, we have a meeting of the external impression 
really first present in the capital I and the astral body, with the physical body and etheric body from within. The physical body born on our mineral constituents and the etheric body born on our fluid constituents. Now this does not remain with the I, E-Y-E. What the I, E-Y-E mediates shines into the rest of the organism. Vision, we can say, really involves an encounter between the extraordinary complex process at work in the capital I and astral body, on the one hand, and the physical and etheric body confronting them from within the organism, the former in its mineral constituents and the latter in the waves or currents of living fluid. What I have here described in relation to vision, in fact, continually occurs throughout the human organism. On waves of living fluid, driven by the physical body, the etheric body continually encounters the capital I-impelled astral body with all its external impressions. And our whole human constitution, our whole very interior situation, is dependent on the way in which these two streams encounter each other within us, where they need to encounter each other in the right way. What does, in quotes, right mean in this context? Here, once again, we meet some extremely complex factors. In our head organization, there's another drawing, the head is really a modeled reflection of the powers which we possessed in our pre-earthly existence as being of soul and spirit. The head has been modeled and develops very, very early on in the embryo, really only retaining a sculpting capacity. If the human head did not have this modeling or sculpting capacity, it would be a dead entity. The human head is a wonderful structure, a faithful image or imprint of the physical, etheric, and even the astral body and the capital I. It models and reflects how these forces enter earthly existence from a super-earthly realm. The head does indeed form itself as an image of cosmic experiences which we undergo in pre-earthly existence, retaining only the power to sculpt and shape. In studying the child we can see that all shaping and modeling power emanates really from his head shining down into the rest of the organism and giving appropriate plastic shape to his organs as he grows. What emanates from the head is nothing other than a plastic shaping power. And when processes such as those involved in vision penetrate the head, they encounter an incipient power which seeks to shape and configure them. What enters through the eyes seeks to assume form inwardly in us. Above all, it seeks to shape the nerves, the nervous system, so that in a sense a kind of reflection arises within us of the outer impression. So we can put it like this. In this direction, passing inward from the senses, a shaping power enters. This power seeks, in a sense, and subtly, to make us into a sculpted column. This is really how it is. Everything we see is trying to make us into a column in a certain subtle sense. Coming to meet this is another power, 
in this instance, from the kidney system, acting in everything I have described. This power continually dissolves what is seeking to assume shape. Reflect on this for a moment. If I tried to illustrate this for you, I would have to say, a very subtle image enters from the eye, E-Y-E, and tries to form a shape, even to the extent of trying to make this a physical configuration. The kind of influence exerted here involves salts that are otherwise dissolved, forming conglomerations, trying to become solid salt in a continuing tendency to shape and form. But now, likewise continually, there rises from below a tendency to dissolve this again. Thus we have in the human organism an ongoing inward penetrating tendency seeking to form a column and something from within that continually dissolves it again. This process occurring in the encounter of the astral with the etheric, in which the latter is born toward the astral on waves of fluidity, is immensely important for human life. In fact, it encompasses the whole of it. Imagine for a moment that someone tells you something this evening, but this too is an impression, albeit one that arises differently, involves different senses from when you see a red surface. What is communicated to you seeks to assume form or shape within you. If it succeeds in doing so, you retain a memory of it. And if your head is of the type that is very keen to salt away every impression, then you'll have a wonderful memory and can rattle off whatever anyone has told you like a robot. But this is not true of most people, since they largely tend to dissolve everything again. And what does this dissolving in the stream of fluid bearing the etheric body and meeting and confronting and what, excuse me, let me read that again. But this is not true of most people since they largely tend to dissolve everything again. And what does this dissolving is the stream of fluid bearing the etheric body and meeting and confronting the plastic shaping forces. This continual dissolving current is a warm one, in fact. As we study this, we become aware of something extremely interesting. If we wish to possess human rather than robot-type memories that we rattle off mechanically, we ought not to form a solid salt structure whenever someone tells us something. There are people who do this, but they lose their autonomy in the process. Rather than being the person who remembers things, they can start to be driven by them and become mechanical. If one wishes to be an autonomous person, the following process has to unfold. What another person tells you or what you read remains initially in the capital I and the astral body and now seeks to penetrate through the brain organization, the head organization, into the fluid system, first of all, and can then consolidate and call forth a kind of mineral type structure. But it is good that the inner stream arrives and initially extinguishes this so that at most the impression itself penetrates the fluid, though it grows vague and blurred there, and no solid structure is created. Since no solid structure arises, the process remains in the astral body only. Now when night comes, one falls asleep, 
and the astral body and capital I depart, taking the impression with them, which gains in strength during sleep. And there's a drawing. Then it enters again when we wake up and is possibly extinguished again, and usually this process is repeated three or four times. Only after the fourth night is the extinguishing power no longer strong enough, and then this impression settles in us as this plastic structure that is no longer dissolved and becomes the basis for memory pictures. You will say, though, that you remember things you heard yesterday when you haven't yet slept on them a few times. That's quite correct, but that is a different matter. Remembering things you only heard yesterday is due to them still remaining in your astral body or possibly making an impression in the etheric body. But one does not forget things after just a day or even after two or three. When something is truly forgotten, the inner dissolving power is so vigorous after the fourth day that the impression is entirely extinguished. Then it really is gone. We irretrievably forget something. If the strength available can still dissolve it as it recurs in us a fourth time. This is very interesting and can be observed by the faculty of imagination so that we learn how things are retained or not. And this leads us to something else, to understanding that the human head is a much slower customer than the rest of us. In speaking of the threefold human being, with the rhythmic organism in the center between the neurosensory organism, that is the head organism on the one hand, and the system of limbs and metabolism on the other, we can say that the head organism works at a much slower tempo in its whole development and existence than the organism of metabolism and limbs. And while this inner conglomeration, this shaping and forming resulting from some impression or other, takes, let us say just as an example, a second, the kidney system has in the same amount of time already given four extinguishing impulses, four extinguishing attacks, if you like. It is interesting that in this encounter I have described, the upward impetus from the kidney system and the downward impetus from external influences relate to each other in the same rhythm as that between breathing and pulse, and that in fact there are four dissolving attacks to every entering impression. And it is also due to this that we must sleep on something four times before it becomes solidly enough inscribed in us. These things cohere in a wonderful way if we can really study the inner configuration of the human organism. But this also relates to something else. If we rise upward toward the head in our consideration of the human being, we enter a tempo of life that is four times slower than the one we meet when we look at the digestive organs, say, or the kidney system. The kidney system works speedily, bringing about what it inwardly, bringing what it inwardly processes through into the etheric realm that floats upon the waves of living water. When we shut our eyes and consciously dull our brain and then study what streams from the kidneys, we arrive at imaginations that float upon the living water. In other words, we see our own interior in imaginations. This reveals an extremely interesting structure. 
If you imagine this to be the kidney system, there's a drawing, you can say that what we're calling the living water streams out from it toward the whole organism. What is eliminated here is only the relatively exhausted excess, which passes outward. But at the same time, this enlivened water imbued with the etheric organism goes toward the whole of the rest of the organism. This etheric organization contains plentiful imaginations, is entirely pervaded with them. We can perceive these imaginations as an image of our own organism if we subdue our brain consciousness and all sensory perceptions. This is a healthy process. But if the kidney is diseased, and this leads to a strong irradiation of the life water, all kinds of forms arise in it, giving rise, as we know, to subjective apparitions that can affect people with kidney disease. The impetus working as I have described, basically an impetus in inner images, through which inner body warmth continually pulses, meeting impressions from without that seek to become sculptural, works four times faster than the influx working inward from without. And we find this expressed once more in a certain periodicity occurring in our life insofar as we see such periods as issuing from the etheric organism. In other words, issuing precisely from what I have drawn here. We speak of seven-year periods in our life. Up to the second dentition, then sexual maturity, and so forth. For instance, at the age of the sixth year of life, when the second teeth are emerging, the physical body approaches the end of its intrinsic action, and then the etheric organism comes more fully into its own up to the time of sexual maturity. But something issues from the head and opposes what unfolds in these periodic and rhythmic processes from one seven-year period to the next, continually seeking to slow down these processes since the head proceeds in a far slower way. By the time someone is nearing the end of his twenty-eighth year, the head has really only arrived at the point that the rest of the human being achieved at the end of his seventh year. This is a very important secret of the development of a human individual. Outwardly, this comes to expression in the fact that we cannot really think of ourselves as fully grown, both inwardly and outwardly, until our late twenties. Everything issuing from the head only comes to completion then. At the age of twenty-eight, the head is really only seven years old, and so this is something we have in our whole being. In the same way that we have breathing and blood circulation, and the relationship between them, so as a correlation throughout our life, Head processes relate to the processes that emanate from the digestive system and from our whole system of metabolism and limbs. This too has a one-to-four relationship and is of great significance for life. For instance, it means that everything we teach a child between 7 and 14 only gradually comes to expression in the head and really not until the age of 35 has everything come to expression in the head so that the head is caught up and everything has achieved its full resonance then, excuse me, there. This takes four times seven years. The first period between that, the first period being that between seven and fourteen, the second from fourteen to twenty-one, the third from twenty-one to twenty-eight, and the fourth 
from 28 to 35. This casts a really vital light on the right way of teaching and educating children. You can see that education must be arranged in a way that takes proper cognizance of these things. If you consider only what the child finds interesting and can absorb between the age of 7 and 14, what catches his attention, then you can teach him what he wishes to take notice of at present. But the processes at work in the system of limbs and metabolism, which initially physically sustain what is absorbed, fade after seven years. And now something must remain even if the substance sustaining it is gone. It must be accessible to the head and must be adequate to last until the age of 21, when substance has again been replaced. Once more it must last until the age of 28, when the substance has again disappeared, and it must have the capacity to last through until the age of 35. Then finally it will be settled entirely in the ether body, and will not so easily be dispelled from it, since this body is not replaced in the same way as physical substance. So you see how things are interrelated in human life, and we therefore need to know that if we were nothing but a head, we would really only be seven years old by the time we were twenty-eight, and only fourteen years old by the time we were thirty-five. As far as the intrinsic aim of the human head is concerned, our tranquil development is continually exposed to attack from the system of metabolism and limbs. So if we want to understand human nature, we cannot regard the substance of the head as being homogeneous with that of the rest of the organism, but must instead see the interplay between the metabolism-limb system and the head organism as a rhythmic relationship that works right into individual organs. Consider the eye, E-Y-E. Here we have the optic nerve on the one hand and the blood vessels on the other. There's a drawing. The system of metabolism and limbs is found in the eye, E-Y-E, in the form of blood vessels, whereas the neurosensory organism is represented by the optic nerve. Now, let's take a closer look at the eye, where we find a one-to-four relationship between processes at work in the optic nerve, in the retina, and the tempo of the pulse. In the eye there is a continual intervibration between two different rhythms in a one-to-four ratio, and visual processes depend on this. What occurs in the eye's choroid membrane seeks to dissolve what is trying to consolidate in the nerves. The optic nerve keeps trying to create contoured forms, whereas the choroid membrane, with the blood flowing there, keeps trying to dissolve this. Things are not as simple as people usually picture them. The eye's arterial vessels have their own network, and the venous capillaries incorporate themselves into this in turn, so that the one does not connect directly with the other. Specifically, in the eye, we can say that the arterial blood streams out, in a sense, and only then is absorbed by the venous system, giving rise to a gentle outflow and reabsorption in the eye. It is quite mistaken, a great oversimplification, to think that the arterial blood vessel, excuse me, that the arterial blood uh, 
passes directly into the venous blood here. That is not the case. Instead, we see a fine outflow followed by absorption. The circulatory rhythm vibrates in this outflow, and the breathing rhythm vibrates in the adjoining nerve, and these enter into interplay in the eye. Thus vision really consists of the encounter of these two rhythms in the eye. It is worthwhile reflecting that if these two rhythms were identical, we would be unable to see anything. Imagine you are running alongside a cart. If you run as fast as it is going, you will not feel its motion. But if you walk four times slower, but still keep holding on to it, you will feel a pull. The cart will carry on, and you will have to hold it back if you wish to slow it down. The same is true in the eye. The function of the optic nerve tries to hold back the rhythm that is four times faster, and in doing so, visual perception arises in the same way that you'll feel the cart if you're walking four times slower than it is going. If you walk or run at the same speed, you won't feel anything pulling you. And how do you experience yourself as an I capital? by virtue of the fact that your head runs four times more slowly than the rest of your organism. Here you sense yourself, perceive yourself inwardly, because your head functions are slower and out of step with the tempo of the system of limbs and metabolism. And now there are countless human illnesses and disorders which result from the following. Every organism has a certain measure of equilibrium in this four-to-one rhythm. A certain measure of equilibrium obtains depending on the precise nature of our organism. The relationship is never exactly one to four, you see, but there are all kinds of possible permutations depending on the diverse nature of individuals. A certain ratio holds sway in each human individual, and if this is disrupted, if, say, one to four is the normal relationship for a particular person at a certain time of life, but circumstances arise where instead it becomes one to four and one-seventh. Then the dissolving force grows too vigorous and the person in question cannot develop a sufficient columnar quality. You need only think of conditions involving excessive deliquescence. The opposite can occur equally, giving rise to conditions that manifest as cramp-type disorders. If the astral vibrates too quickly through the etheric and physical bodies, flickering through them and not grasping them slowly enough, cramps appear. Consider ordinary cramps or seizures in childhood, for instance. These are caused by nothing other than the astral organism and the capital I, not yet properly descending into the physical and etheric organism. The right interplay and relationship still needs to be established. You see, the astral organism and the I, capital, at first vibrate too quickly into the organism of limbs and metabolism, and the latter cannot yet properly cope with this. When the vibration occurs in the right way, the astral organism and the capital I slowly penetrate a piece of the physical and etheric organism. We can say that every astral current always properly grasps a tiny drop of the life water through which the etheric streams. They adjust to one another if the right tempo is present. 
But if the entering vibration is too rapid, another drawing, then the astral gives a jolt to the etheric, and thus also to the life water, we're giving rise to cramp-like conditions, especially in childhood, since the proper rhythm for this influx has not yet been established. This has far-reaching implications. For instance, we can, at least, explain a severe disorder, seen as a great problem today, in terms of a particular disruption to the proper harmony of this relationship. I am thinking of the grave condition of polio or infantile paralysis. We thus find an explanation for this disease, although not its cure immediately, since the discord of tempo here is caused by less accessible conditions. In general, we can only gain real insight into the human organism if we can take account of such conditions, knowing that it is not an abstract truth to say we sleep when our capital I and astral body withdraw from the physical and etheric body, and that what exists outside the physical and etheric body at night contains impulses for a much slower kind of life activity than do the levels of our being that remain behind. In sleep we are almost entirely a being of limbs and metabolism, through into, through into the brain. Since then everything that occurs is subject to the sway of the organism of limbs and metabolism. Now inwardly, in relation to everything subject to the slower rhythm, we are greatly exposed to harmonic powers, while all that corresponds to the quicker rhythm has an affinity with luciferic powers. If you take a look at the group statue, you can see that everything harmonic in nature is oriented to the slow rhythm, and everything the corresponding forms no and everything harmonic in nature there is oriented to the slow rhythm and therefore the corresponding forms are hardened into stiff angular ones. Everything of a luciferic nature in this wooden sculpture relates to a fast rhythm, which because of this rapidity rounds all the forms, giving them a wave-like rather than sharp, spiky or stiffened appearance. Just by observing the forms themselves you can see the tempo of relationship depicted there between three or four and one. These things are important for understanding both the healthy and the sick human organism. Science will need this enlargement of view which can only be provided by what I here call anthroposophical spiritual science. I will continue these reflections and subsequently reconcile them so that we can start to see history arising from human nature and on the other hand the human being arising from history. The end of Lecture 3